Welcome to Imperfect Leaders. We invite the country's most admired leaders in business, sports, and education, and ask them to share practical lessons and advice with our listeners. After all, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. The only question is, are you willing to listen and learn from the very best? If you want to share comments or questions or recommend future guests, visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. Today's guest, Trisha Biggio, is the founder and CEO of a company called Invisible Universe that's destined to become the next Pixar. Actually, a much better version of Pixar, geared more towards an entirely new generation that's used to consuming content in totally novel ways. In all honesty, I barely know Trisha, but I already love her. In addition to being a fantastic mother of two toddlers, she's an incredibly self-aware, empathic, funny, and passionate leader. She uses a metaphor that really stuck with me. She likens being a CEO of a fast-growing VC-backed startup to that of being a mother. They're both exhilarating and they're both exhausting, and she wouldn't trade either job for anything in the world. She goes so far as to say that being a mom actually makes her a more authentic and inspiring CEO, and vice versa. So I hope you love Trisha as much as me after this show, but first, let's find out in Trisha's own words exactly what Invisible Universe does and why they're so very special. Invisible Universe is the Pixar of the internet. And so um, with that, you know, we're building animated franchises from a really different starting point. Um, so traditionally you think of your favorite animated franchises, the ones that have captured your hearts and, and sort of stayed with you as you've grown older or perhaps now um, become something you share with your, your own children or the next generation. They've typically been born from either TV or, or film or publishing. Um, and, and we saw this incredible opportunity to use social media platforms and really build in this internet first way to incubate IP faster. Um, and so not only was it um, a way to sort of get to market quicker than what the studios would do, but we've also found that it's a way to build affinity so much stronger, so much faster because of this two-way dialogue that can happen between our characters and the millions of people that follow them. So Invisible is an animation studio. We are creating, you know, household name animated franchises where they start on social media, build a following, and then reach sort of a tipping point where they graduate and and, and sort of get to move off of TikTok and Instagram and YouTube into long form, into movies, into games, and eventually into licensing and consumer products and toys. So that's maybe the coolest company description <laughs> I've ever heard. I mean, Thanks, tell me a little bit about your background, Trisha, and how you came up with this really cool idea. So my background um, was originally, um, I had a sort of another life before I moved to Los Angeles, grew up in Chicago, got a master's degree in psychology, thinking initially that I was going to be a therapist, um, and then sort of pivoted after a few internships, including one um, very gnarly one at a, at a mental health hospital, um, and realized I couldn't leave the work at work, um, which is really bad for a psychologist, but probably really awesome for a startup CEO. Um, and so I pivoted a little bit during, during college and decided to get a master's degree in organizational psychology. So I sort of became a workplace therapist. 
Um, and so I spent two years after graduate school doing management consulting, working with some of um, the country's biggest, uh, well, the world's biggest companies. Um, and, that sounds and exactly and opposite and the most boring thing possible for someone <laughs> like you, Tricia. It was, uh, you know, it was funny. I, I sort of thought that the job was going to be this like challenging, um, intellectually stimulating role. And, and the truth was many days, it was sort of like I had Anna Kendrick's job and up in the air, um, a, a little bit less sexy than, than it initially seemed. Um, so no I, 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 on the other side. Yeah, yeah. There was there was no George Clooney on the other side. Um, just just a lot of really hard conversations. Um, so I ended up um leaving that job in pursuit of something more creative. Um, I told my parents, you know, at 25 years old that I was gonna forego the career that I had set set on and was gonna move to LA. Um, they quickly reminded me I didn't know anyone and also hadn't studied anything that would even apply. Um, but but here I was just kind of hell bent on making it work. Um, so drove out to Los Angeles, um, like so many do with like totally wild ambitions and, and no real plans um, mm -hmm. and sent my resume hundreds of places. The only one that reached out to me, ironically, was CAA. Oh, wow. And you know, it's one of the world's biggest talent agencies. And so my naive self is like, well, this isn't that hard to break into. My God. So um, you get this personal letter from Michael Ovid saying, why don't you come on by CAA for a little yeah. bit? <laughs> yeah, that's how Mike and I became buds. Um, no, the, the reality was that the woman wanted me to work in HR. And and my resume sort of read as as I would be a candidate interested in that. Um, so then I had to sort of gracefully do the tap dance of like, I don't want to work in HR. I'm bored by it. Um, but also, you seem great. So she um, she ended up introducing me to a producer friend of hers who was looking for kind of entry level help um, and specifically looking for an assistant. And so I, like many others, started my career um, on the television side as an assistant to an executive producer um, and quickly moved up. And within a year, I was um, producing shows. So I spent the last 15 years of my career as a television producer. I've worked on hundreds of hours of TV, um, some of them big name shows and, and some of them ones that, you know, you probably wouldn't admit you watch, but would be your guilty pleasures. Let's hear um, a couple. Well, okay. So I created a, a few dating shows. I created, are you the one, um, which was actually based off my own, like dating mishaps in my twenties, um, with this idea being, if your perfect match was standing right in front of you, would you even know it? Hmm. Um, and so we, we created that show, which it went on to have many successful seasons on MTV. And was it um, as painful, like being a single woman in Chicago as it, as I hear all these horror stories as in New York? I think LA might take the cake, but I don't know. I'm, I'm biased. Right. Um, I did eventually meet my, my partner and, and so, um, have, have LA to thank for that, but man, I had some good stories during those days. Um, and, and so I produced, um, a lot of really fun dating formats, competition shows, makeover shows, um, and then went to the buying side. And so I worked at Viacom mm -hmm. as a buyer there which was really fun getting to hear pitches. Um, so I was taking, you know, between 50 and 60 pitches a week, mm -hmm. um, which was incredibly thrilling. And then I moved over um, to the studio side. I worked at MGM, worked for Mark Burnett over there, um, pitching like a hundred shows a year um, and working on incredible formats that, you know, have stood the test of time, like Survivor and The Voice and Shark Tank and things that certainly didn't need my notes. Um, by the time I got to MGM, they were well-oiled machines. Um, but my role was really more about finding the next franchise hits. 
Um, and then I became obsessed with tech and became obsessed with the ways in which entertainment was getting disrupted by technology. Um, everyone was cable cord cutting. The streaming wars were just kind of kicking off. And there was an opportunity for me to go over to Snapchat. Mm. And so I moved over there and was on their shows team. Okay. And then, so how then Invisible Universe? So one of the things that I saw at Snapchat pretty immediately, um, and and keep in mind that, you know, I had left TV where a hit was sort of constituted by like a 0.3 in the ratings. And you'd be like, we're probably getting a second season, you know, and, and you were like trying to muster up this genuine enthusiasm over something that was just kind of like mildly cutting through. Mm -hmm. And then cut to, I get to Snapchat and day one, they're like, okay, we have 260 million daily active users. And I'm sitting there like, what? There's going to be this many people that see the shows I make. Mm -hmm. And one of my first shows that I produced there had like 20 million views in the first 24 hours. Wow. And so immediately that was totally intoxicating to me. It felt so gratifying to work on something as hard as you put, um, you know, you put effort into all the things as a creative, um, regardless of how many people are actually going to watch it. So just the idea that so many people were seeing it was really exciting to me. Um, but while I was there, um, my partner in, in the business at Invisible, he was on the sports partnerships team. So I'm sitting over here as a creative making shows and he's over sort of um, in, in encouraging world famous athletes um, to use the app. Mm -hmm. And together we sort of saw this opportunity specifically with Serena Williams um, to launch a character. And it was truly like, almost born from a joke. Like it was this idea that she and Alexis had gotten their, their little girl who was one at the time, her first doll. They and were posting with the doll. Alexis Ohanian, mm -hmm. um, Serena Williams' husband. Mm -hmm. And so they'd gotten their little girl, her first doll. They were posting all the time. And this doll just kind of took on a life of her own. People were really into it. Um, and, and this idea kind of came together where it was like, wait, if we brought that to life in 3D and told stories with that doll and actually had that doll have a personality, a point of view, motivations, flaws, um, how much would people fall in love with it? And could it be like the next Toy Story? Um, and so that's really how Invisible came to be. That's amazing. So then you sit down with Serena and, you know, she had a pretty busy tennis career as probably the best tennis player ever. Yes. And so how do you broach this idea to her? Does she think you're absolutely crazy when you mention this to her or does she get excited about it? I think... Honestly, I think they both probably, Alexis and Serena probably both thought the idea was a little bit nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, when, when you do become a parent, you naturally start um, becoming more a part of like kids franchises and kids content. And so I do think that they were really smart in seeing this as an opportunity and as a real business, um, you know, jokes aside, which was very funny that it was like, so you guys are going to leave your jobs and run an Instagram account for my one-year-old's baby doll. Like it does seem insane. Um, but you know, our ambitions were, were huge and they remain huge, which is, you know, Quakeway is not our only piece of IP. We're really more like a house of brands and, and we want to be building the next Coco Melon, but 10 or 20 times over. And what is Coco Melon? Coco Melon is right now globally, the biggest kids franchise that exists. Um, it was born on YouTube and, you know, over the course of 15 years on YouTube grew to become just a huge juggernaut and now has like somewhere around 750 or 800 different SKUs on the marketplace, which is really like the measure of 
impact of a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can have your Coco Melon toothbrush and your PJs and um, your toys and movies and shows and all that. So I told you before, my son is now 14 months. How long do I have to wait until I start watching these religiously and getting to know? When is Luca <laughs> going to make fun of me for not knowing this? Okay, it's soon. It's coming soon. I <laughs> wish I had better news, but from a parent to a parent, I have to be honest. Like you, you probably you're you're looking at like ninety days or less before your kid oh, is going to oh start demanding God. Coco Melon. <laughs> I better go have a beer tonight, then. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell me. I so you said that you guys want to become the next Pixar. That's a pretty huge ambition. Let's let's just talk about the creative process. So what is it like when you're developing this new character for Serena Williams' daughter? Well, one of the things that I think is so unique about our approach um, is that when we're coming up with a new franchise, we aren't saying, you know, outside of Serena, where her character happened to be based off an actual doll, usually what we're developing is, is, you know, blue sky development, meaning we're coming up with something that we think will have a real opportunity in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we come up with what we think that sort of end franchise looks like from a toy and product perspective. Mm-hmm. And then we're reverse engineering that to create great characters with great stories. Um, and so for Serena's, um, you know, we had something awesome to work with, which was this adorable doll. Um, but, you know, Serena's nephew is the one that gave it the name Quake. He just thought it kind of rolled off the tongue and sounded, sounded awesome. Um, and, and we together have, you know, really built out her personality and her backstory. And one of the very cool things that we have at our fingertips, thanks to social media, is a constant feedback loop. Mm. So for better or worse, we know where we stand with our audiences at all times. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really different um, facet to our model than any studio has. Mm-hmm. You know, we we put something out and we sort of think of our IP as if it's an MVP and we're testing it, we're seeding it, and we're letting the community actually tell us what they think. We're doubling down on the stuff they really respond to, staying away from the stuff that doesn't exactly land. And so in many ways, we're we're iterating as we go and truly building with the fans input. Um, and that's been an incredibly key part of our creative development. It, it sounds so cool and so practical leveraging the internet and instant feedback, but is there at all any kind of downside to it? So for example, suppose that you and your creative team and Serena come up with something that you just know, you know, from the bottom of your heart is right. You know, that's the right thing. That's the right flaw for this character. Yeah. Uh, this is the right persona, but the audience doesn't really take to it right away because you have to kind of, they have to kind of get to know this person. How, I mean, how do you have the courage or wherewithal to stay in it, even if the initial feedback might not be as great as you had hoped? It's such a good question. Um, My answer might sound, um, my answer might sound controversial, but it's truly what I believe, which is then we didn't find the right flaw. Then we didn't find the right narrative thrust for the character. And I think um, that sort of egoless storytelling approach mm-hmm. is really innovative and disruptive um, and isn't something we've seen studios do, right? So a Disney or a Pixar would say, hey, we're going to build this. It's going to take us three to five years. We're going to also invest, you know, a couple hundred million dollars into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think we know what you like mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll let you know when we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're saying is, we think we have something really cool here, but you tell us if we do. <laughs> and and so what we're really doing, I think, is is de-risking the ultimate investment into content and franchise development. Um, but but 
from my perspective, nothing is as important as the end user, as the customer, which is in our case, these communities of millions of people that follow it. So they'll tell us what, what syncs up and what doesn't. I mean, why do you say that is controversial? So would the people, the creative geniuses at Disney say, no, we actually do know what's right? Yes. Like, you know, that's what yes. they'll say. Yes. I very much think that, um, you know, studio creatives um, like to believe that that they have all the answers or, you know, as we've seen NFTs blow up, one of the most common discussions I've had with with others in this space is, well, how can you let a community have creative inputs? And my response has been like, we've been doing that for two years on TikTok. Um, and, and NFTs are really just like a way to sort of memorialize that through a token, a digital token. Um, but this idea of letting communities actually impart creative um, opinions and expertise, I think is what's going to be the next generation's demand. I, I think that's the table setting um, for, for kids that are coming up now. Is this the way that they do it at the company that you admire, Pixar? I mean, what is the creative process like there and what do you love about their culture? There are many things I love about their culture. Um, there are also many things that I think should be disrupted and that we're disrupting. So I'll start with what I love about their culture. Mm -hmm. um, I love that at the heart of everything they do is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so I, I share that ethos that um, nothing that we could do at Invisible matters if we haven't created something amazing. And so, and that's really hard to do this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what, what Pixar did and what we're really doing is acknowledging that and putting creative on the pedestal it should be on um, because ultimately you can monetize something when there's love built, mm -hmm. but the way to build love is to make something that creatively cuts through. Um, I think what Pixar does that is different from our approach, um, you know, they have a brain trust, which is really their group of, of creative executives that weighs in and, and provides input as they're putting out their next film. Um, and for us, like, think of our brain trust as like the most transparent brain trust you've ever seen. <laughs> and, and it's almost like, you know, as we're, as we're having those meetings, imagine those meetings being like, uh, broadcast live on TikTok or Instagram. That's really how I think about it. So <laughs> we're just, we're doing it with many, many more inputs, mm -hmm. which I don't view as watering down creative. I actually view it as de-risking creative choices. And, and do you think that the same can be said about your cult, your company's culture? You know, it does Invisible Universe have that same sort of diverse kind of culture that really is representative of what's out there in the broader society? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that in order to make a product um, that touts all of these tenants that I'm talking about, you have to build a team that mirrors that. And, and so we, we have an incredibly diverse team, both in terms of um, you know, gender and, and race and, and socioeconomic background, education background. Um, we have a, a good deal of our team that is ex-US. And so really we're getting this like incredible group of perspectives. Um, and one of the things that we really value as a company is, is transparency. Mm -hmm. Um, and we kind of call it like the third idea, which for us means, you know, it, it won't be the first idea, probably won't even be the second idea. It'll be the third idea that wins. Just listening to you, I can tell that you're a great storyteller. How did you develop that personal skill? And has it always been something that's really important to you? Yes, it's always been something important to me. Um, 
I mean, when I was a kid, my parents would be like a little, a few less words today, maybe. <laughs> um, so I'm, I've always, uh, I guess the Irish in me would, would like to brand it as like the gift of gab. Um, but the truth is I just don't know how to shut up. Um, and, and I love and appreciate a good story and a good storyteller. Um, and it's interesting because I think back to when I sort of had my quarter life crisis and left my consulting job and moved to LA. And at the time I just knew I wanted to do something creative. Mm -hmm. Um, but hindsight's 2020. And as I look back on it, I think I wanted to tell stories professionally and this is my passion and where I want to spend time. And I'm just very lucky that I get to do it. In, in another thing. So if I think about all these things that you love doing, storytelling, creativity, being collaborative, being transparent, what, why do you think these uh, values are personally important to you? And, you know, as I was sort of researching this interview, I was looking at some of your investors and I saw um, Chris Vanzetta, uh, and I guess he's somebody new in one of the, the firms. And yes. I loved his story, you know, talking about as a gay man who is coming to terms with his own identity, he struggled to find his sense of belonging and true community. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the key reasons why he likes to help other organizations create mm. their warm and inclusive environments. And I could tell that that was his North Star. Yeah. So what about your North Star? I mean, what is it and how did it develop? Was there anything like an early, earlier life that helped forge those core values of yours? First of all, Chris is one of my favorite people in the world. So I love that you just brought him up. Um, he's wonderful. Um, you know, for, for me, I think that I, I'm an empath. So from an early, early age, I, for better or worse, picked up on other people's emotions. Um, and so if there was a kid feeling left out or if there was somebody being bullied, like all of those things, they felt like my burden um, and they felt like something I would take on and, and want to fix. Um, I think I found through good storytelling this way to sort of use my social skills as a way to create like warmth and acceptance among peer groups, um, which was always sort of my MO. Like I look back, you know, to high school and like, I was not in any one group. Um, I was friends with every single group of, of people in high school and couldn't really be pegged to one. And I think that's always been something that feels really important to me is until you know someone's story, um, you really don't know anything. Um, and so I've sort of used my own ability to tell my story or tell other stories to get other people to open up as well. Um, and so for me, like my, the, the thing I'm the most allergic to in the world is like useless small talk. Like I just can't do it. I'm not built for it. Um, I feel like I, like I visibly look bored. Um, and so for you me, like it's, you, it's you really about connecting. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Spencer, Spencer and I share that. I was interviewing him for a podcast and we we're about an hour into it. And I said, good news, Spencer. We only have two hours left. And he almost <laughs> got a gun and shot me through the screen. Um, That's awesome. But so, okay. So in an interview process, I'm, you know, assuming, and I can already tell that you, you have such a great group of people, but how can you tell, you know, if a good on paper candidate that you're interviewing is actually like the right fit for you guys? <sighs> It is such a good question. Um, well, I'll talk generally about my sort of recruiting spidey senses throughout my career, but then I'll talk specifically about invisible. Mm -hmm. I think in general for me, 
I've always looked to hire people that have the like fire in their belly. And it's, it's a tough quality to sort of ascertain through an interview. Um, but that's why I typically spend quite a bit of time with somebody before making an offer. Um, Caitlin Holloway, who's at 776 and uh, is Alexis's partner in that fund. And one of my favorite mentors um, always uses the like, hire slowly, fire quickly kind of uh, mandate. And so I really believe in that. I think that people will show you exactly who they are throughout an interview process. Um, and so are they following up? You know, I remember um, there were certain jobs that I've gone for in my career where I probably was like coming on too strong, but I was just so excited about it that like everything I was reading or listening to was sort of making me think of that opportunity. And, and I would tell whoever it was making the decision, like, Hey, I was up till two in the morning thinking about this last night, but that's the sort of like fire in the belly that I look for in other people. Mm -hmm. Um, because culturally I'm not a clock watcher. I've never been, mm -hmm. I don't care how somebody does their job. Um, if you can figure out a way to do your job in less hours than I think it takes you to do it, good for you because I have a high bar of excellence. And if you have somehow like managed to cross that, exceed that bar and do it in a very, you know, efficient way, like I could learn from you. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, so because I'm not going to be the type of person that micromanages, I have to hire for the people that will always like go to the final mile to get the job done. And that's really important to me. I think at invisible, what I have found as a really interesting filter, and it sounds pretty ridiculous as I say it out loud, but like I've told recruiters before, like find me the person that's been at Disney or Nickelodeon who hates it. Mm. Like find me the person who is bored, who, you know, is frustrated by the bureaucracy is doesn't think that like we need eight meetings in a day to have a meeting about the meeting to prep for the next meeting. Like find me those people. Um, because in many ways, that's what I think happened to me in, in my last couple of years as an executive in TV, where I just wanted to run faster and, and be more experimental and, and break some rules. And so I think um, that's like a new filter that I'm really using at Invisible. And I actually yeah. interviewed um, the CEO of Cirque, uh, Cirque du Soleil, and he's, he said basically that they don't even hire people, they cast talent. So like- That's a great he, way of looking at it. Yeah, and he gave an example, I know I'm gonna screw it up, but he said like he was, you know, one of the creative directors was hiring or they were about to hire um, this really serious Russian weightlifter guy. <laughs> and they had the entire cast, you know, stand in a circle, and this Russian guy had to do sort of an impromptu stand-up comedy routine. Um, <laughs> and obviously, Cirque's not testing, you know, assessing the comedic chops of this Russian guy that barely speaks any English. Yeah. But they wanted to see if he could be vulnerable. And if he That's had right. with the team and how they connected. I mean, how do you guys tell if somebody not only has the raw skills and the creative impact, but has that culture fit in the chemistry with you guys? It, it's so critical. Um, what, what we do is get their opinion of our content. And it's so interesting because you learn so much. Number one, you learn, will they sort of um, feel like because it's me, they might be saying it to, or maybe it's our chief creative officer that they're saying it to, like, are they worried to hurt our feelings, right? That's that's number one. Um, but number two, what is their feedback? Like, what, what can we learn from the perspective that they bring? And so no matter what the hire is, they'll be asked to look at content and, and give us feedback on it. And from my perspective, like, the, the behavior I want people to demonstrate when they start is a fearlessness about being honest. Mm -hmm. Like 
if we're about to put something out that you think is lame, tell us you think it's lame, you know, like help us. We should all be helping each other. And so um, there's and no how you, preciousness. How do you respond? So if somebody said that idea is terrible, Trisha, how, how did you come up with something so stupid? How do you react? Oh my God. I had a, I had a real instance of this recently. Um, we put up a piece of content where we referred to Serena and Alexis as goats and, and the younger, um, more, more junior people on our team were like, we don't really say goat anymore. And I'm like, it's Serena Williams. We're saying goat. Like she is the goat. Um, and so that was just a funny one where they were like, that's fine for her. But in general now it would be a little bit cringe. And so it's about like opening yourself up to letting someone on your team tell you that something you just came up with might be cringe. Um, and we even have team members who I joke and will tell them like, you're my cringe police. Like I'm, I'm asking you if this is cool for you to tell me whether it is. And I think that's um, a critical thing to build when you're distributing on the internet. And so that that's something critical you look for. What happens if you see somebody that's a super amazing, talented, creative person, but they don't quite fit the culture of the, comp of the company? Will you take a pass on that person? I will. I would take a pass on that person. Why? I think... I think nothing is as important as a culture, particularly at early stages of the company. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen it, I've been at companies where there's great and healthy cultures and I've been at ones where it's less so. Mm -hmm. And particularly when your end product is so um, foundationally dependent on creative, mm -hmm. if you have a toxic culture or if you even have a culture, it doesn't even have to go as far as to be toxic. Mm -hmm. If you just have a culture where people don't care enough to want to speak up and and collaborate with one another, um, you won't end up winning. I just don't believe that you will. And so I'd rather have somebody that needs to learn some on the job skills, who is a total home run fit for us as a group, um, than have someone who comes in and and maybe doesn't fit right away. And you talked about Caitlin saying, you know, you should hire slow but fire fast. In, in what ways has she been a mentor to you as you, you've gotten your footing as the CEO founder of this really cool, fast growing company? You know, from a really practical perspective, Caitlin and I both share this very unique background, which is that we both kind of came from HR. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think first and foremost, we share a very deliberate um, culture building mindset. And so um, it isn't something that's an afterthought for us at Invisible. And, and for Caitlin as an investor, it isn't either. Mm -hmm. And so I will say of all the investors that I've spoken to, you know, over the past couple of years, Caitlin is the one who asks the hardest questions about team and culture and hiring and rewards and performance management. Um, and give, give and an I think- of, Give me an example of just one or two. Like, um, a great example- a great example would be, um, you know, Caitlin and Chris put on this amazing comp workshop for me where they looked at everybody's bands at the company, helped us establish new bands and growth bands as we start to um, scale, but also looking at the market analysis of other startups at our stage and size um, from an equity perspective and, and where are we lining up? And what is really cool about the way that they do this is that it all comes down to a founder or CEO's philosophies. Like where, how much do you want to reward people with upfront cash and salary versus with equity? And so they really put in the time upfront and I filled out a survey and they analyzed those results. And so what we came away with was this really comprehensive comp program that would probably not exist at companies until they're like a hundred to 150 employees, but we're 19 and, and have it rolled out.
What's the benefit of doing that earlier on in life rather than waiting and having to change? Oh my God, so many benefits. Um, number one, equity. And so the idea that if if you have a you know similar title to someone else at the company, you can be assured that you have a similar pay. Mm. Um, I think that those are cornerstones of a culture and create an atmosphere where people feel that they can that they feel supported and that they trust leadership at the company. Um, I also think it it's really important to give people a line of sight into what career progression looks like. And so by establishing these comp philosophies early, you're not undoing stuff later. That's very hard to do. And, and you start to have people, you know, perceiving things as unfair or why did I not get that? And so to just sort of spend the upfront time, it is going to pay off dividends, I believe, down the road. What's it like being the CEO of such a fast growing startup? I mean, how do you feel and how do you spend your time? Um, I feel about it the same way that I do about having um, toddlers right now, which is, um, so go with me on this metaphor. Okay. It's exhausting and exhilarating and rewarding um, every day. And, and it's all of those, maybe even sometimes within a given hour. And so you really feel like um, it's the greatest project and you have such a emotional tie, um, both, you know, to your kids, your family, but also to the company. Like, it feels like it's a part of me, an extension of me. Um, and so there's, you know, there's few things that I care more about um, than my family and, and the business. Um, and I think as the CEO, one of the biggest challenges is, and this is true in parenting too, is dealing with and processing your own emotions um, in a way that isn't putting on an act for everybody, but also um, is making sure that you're keeping morale up. And so, you know, well, well, I may get hard news on a given day, my team needs to feel like we're still building towards the big vision and mission. And so I think, um, that's been a critical part for me is just like what, learning what how to process. So what does that mean? Like, give me an example of something that's difficult to process as the CEO. And by the way, I can't even possibly imagine you're a mother of two little two toddlers, which is two full-time jobs. Plus you're the CEO of an incredible company. So I don't get it, but tell me like something that's difficult to process. And are you saying that you have to kind of hide that, you know, angst that you may be feeling or, you have to figure out how to process it to make and like keep the ship running. It's the latter. It's it's the figuring out how to process emotions almost in real time because you literally don't have time to stop and wallow. Um, you don't have time. It's the same way when your kid has like a massive fit in the grocery store. You don't get to go to your car and cry. You go to your car and like turn on the ignition and drive. And so it's the same thing. I think fundraising is a great example for leaders where you know, for, for as many yeses and amazing feedback and, and moments of somebody just seeing your vision and getting as excited as you are, there's non-believers and that's just the reality. Um, and so how do you take that feedback? Mm -hmm. How do you internalize that? Um, and, and hopefully turn it into something productive and then move on and move forward. But, um, but, and but let, me, let me unpack that because I think it's a great example. So has there been a moment when a, a you know a venture capitalist didn't like it and said no sorry and did you feel like going to the car and crying and how did you process it and how did you learn how to process it better yeah it's a great question um yeah i think anyone who is honest 
would say passes are never fun. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a very competitive person, um, was never really a major athlete, but was a swimmer and, and, am very into individual sports. And now looking back, I'm like, of course, because I'm mainly competitive with myself. Mm-hmm. So like, if I don't get an A on the test, I'm a perfectionist. If somebody says no to my pitch, um, I don't like it. But at the same time, um, I've got a business to run. And and ultimately, like, I want the people on our cap table that really believe in me and, and the vision of this company. And if there's not a match there, it's sort of like in dating where you're like, okay, so I didn't get a second date, but did I even like him? You know, like, that's sort of like where, where I had to get my head to. Um, but But it's never easy. Is it similar to that same concept of like, you know, dating and basically, you know, you, you were so competitive that, you know, you were confused, even if you didn't like the person, if you didn't get a call back. Yes. And by the way, that is how I wasn't dating. Like my friends would be like, but you said he was like pretty rude and kind of obnoxious. I'm like, I know, but I thought he would call me again. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's the same thing, um, which I think is is good that I have that competitive energy. But as long as I know exactly what to do with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, what how closely you're going to work with the investors on your cap table. You want people that are, you know, ready to rally for you and and the company um, and, and total believers. So um, ultimately, it's it's a it's a good weeding out. <laughs> what and what about you know you said that you, when you did some therapy uh, with some mental health patients that it was hard for you to leave that when you went home. Yes. Is there some of that now that you take with you or that you've had to deal with or sort of work your way through as well? Yes, absolutely. I I honestly believe that if I didn't have kids, um, this would be a harder role for me to have but my kids don't give me an option. You know, like I walk in and I am in mom mode until they go to sleep. And so um, it, it's like this natural um, progression that that happens throughout my day where I may not even be aware that I'm unpacking the day's emotions, but I am, but I'm doing that while I'm, you know, playing with Paw Patrol toys with my two-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's really good for me because I would be the type of person that probably would just never leave. I would be a workaholic. I would, I don't know when to stop. Um, and so having the family, I think is, is punctuating my day in a really helpful way. Do you think there's some other way, like in terms of soft skills or leadership skills that your kids have made you a better CEO? Absolutely. I think for me, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of parents, but definitely was true for me prior to having kids, I was so career focused um, and got so much personal value and self-esteem and fulfillment out of my successes at work um, that it was easy to sort of let it become my whole world. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you have kids, you start to realize like nothing else matters. Like my kids are really all that matters. And, and that doesn't mean I don't care about the other things in my life, whether that's the business or friendships or other things, but but the stakes are so much higher for those little humans that you're bringing up into the world um, than anything else. So it, I think it helps you not sweat the small stuff. I think it helps you like let things roll off your shoulders, um, not take things personally. There's just no time. There's no time to, um, which is a good thing for people like me. Yeah, those are such great examples. And one of the things that I do is help boards sometimes think about CEO succession planning, mm-hmm. uh, which is the board's number one responsibility. But I, And I know this is way, way, way too early for you because you're just getting started. But let's have some fun. I mean, if you were writing a job description for your replacement as the CEO of Invisible Universe, what do you think the top three job requirements would be and the top three leadership skills that you put on that job spec? Mm, it's a great question. 
I think from a job requirement perspective, um, you know, at, at this stage in the company, I would say it's fundraising, um, being being able to fundraise, having investor relationships, um, really knowing how to tell the story of the company and articulate a big vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hiring is a huge one. And, and you know, we we need to go after people who, like my perfect hires are the ones where when an announcement goes out, people are forwarding it to each other being like, can you believe this person? Like, I want to surprise people with the type of hires that we'll be able to get. Does that happen um, a lot? It happens a lot. And awesome. nothing delights me more. You know, many times we'll have like recruiters say to us like, well, I don't think you'd be able to get this person. I was sending you this as like a prototype. And I'm like, well, don't send me a prototype. I want the prototype. Like, <laughs> let's let's talk to them. Um, Especially if they work at Disney and they hate Disney. Exactly, which is which is uh, what happened with my COO, who, by the way, is way too nice a guy to ever say that he hated Disney. So I'm yeah, putting, I'm putting that message in his mouth. Um, poor guy. But yeah, so I think um, I think hiring, I think fundraising, and then I think um, you know, really being able to to articulate a vision and trying some stuff and and maybe pivoting and learning. And I think sometimes in startups we think that once you're post, you know, your seed stage, and once you've done a series A, that the experimenting has to stop, right? Because now you need to prove traction and growth and drive revenue. But the truth is that like, I, if I were investing in companies, I would be like, and you're still experimenting, right? Because mm-hmm. the greatest returns are going to come from some pretty big risks, I think. And I think you need your leaders to still be dreaming big. Um, and then on the soft skills side, I would say the single most important thing mm-hmm. is being able to take the temp of your team um, on a collective level, on an individual level. Just it's tough, especially when you're remote, but really understanding how are people feeling? Where's morale at? Um, what are some blind spots that that maybe I'm not seeing that could come down the pike that are, you know, HR related issues? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, you know, really being able to rally the team. Mm-hmm. I think being able to allow people, and I know Spencer talks about this a lot and I love it, mm-hmm. but being able to ensure that every person on the team knows what they're there for. Um, and so outside of just their their daily tasks or even what the objectives are for the month or the year, like what is the dream? If we've done our job right, what can we say that we accomplished in three to five years from now? Mm. Um, and, and I want everyone to be able to say that like within a couple degrees of difference from each other. <laughs> um, and then I think the, the last piece would just be like a real compassion and flexibility. I think, um, you know, ultimately, and this is true in, in any company, but especially at a, at a venture back startup, the pace is, is unforgiving. The grind is real. Um, and so how do you remember ultimately that these are people, these are humans, um, and, and I think you can get actually even better performance out of people by relating to them on a human level, um, than just kind of, you know, cracking the whip all the time. Um, so those would be the kind of soft skills. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things for me is, um, I'm sure a lot of CEOs or founders could relate to this, but you know, the imposter syndrome that, that creeps in. Um, and so just this feeling of like, sometimes I am truly so blown away by the people that I get to work with or the people that I'm on the phone with or the people that I get to meet through my network now that it's hard to believe that I've sort of like earned the ticket to be in this party. Um, and and so I think just reminding yourself that like you did and and accepting that you did and being grateful for it, but not questioning it. Um, that's been something I've really worked on. Um, and then I think also just 
you know, for me balancing, like being a very transparent leader with also making really tough decisions, which is part of the job as a CEO. And personally, that's been really hard. Um, it's it's unlike, um, examples would include, you know, like tough people related, um, decisions, firing somebody. Yeah. Those are really hard. Having tough performance conversations are hard. Um, we were pivoting off of a certain project and that's very hard. It's, it's hard to sort of look at the team that was working so hard on that. Um, but also acknowledging like market conditions are different and, um, you have to make some very hard decisions and then you have to trust your gut that, that you did the right thing for the business and for the, the stakeholders. That's so interesting. I mean, how did someone in general, especially you, get comfortable? You're such a nice, empathic person. How do you get comfortable with making really hard decisions, especially people-related decisions? It's such a good question. I would say I have gotten comfortable making the decision. I am still wildly uncomfortable living with the decision. <laughs> and it's something I it's something I struggle with. Um, and the truth is, like, I think the day that I would stop struggling with that, I probably would like myself a little less. So I'm I'm okay with that. I can live with it. I know the job I have. I'm always gonna do the right thing by the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't make those days any less hard. Doesn't make it any easier and, and you live with it, you're comfortable with it, but do you have any um, like mechanisms or tricks or people that you can kind of go to sure. when you have those un- really uncomfortable feelings? Yeah, it's a great question. I work with an amazing executive coach hmm. um, who really helps me to process my own emotions about things um, and really keeps me focused on trusting my gut and 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 pushing me to say, do you think that there's any way around this decision? And if the answer is no, then you got to do it, you know? And so, um, and then just helping me on the tactical side, like coming up with the right, um, the right approach for those conversations or, um, you know, the right verbiage and things. So on a very tactical level too, um, I've, I've felt incredibly lucky to work with someone like that. And you want to give a shout out to the coach? Laura Ott, Laura Ott. She is the absolute best. Laura, and do you, do you ever work with some of the um, like Caitlin or Spencer or even uh, Serena, uh, Serena or some of the other folks? Do they help you like in an emotional level deal? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's funny. Each investor relationship is so different um, from one another because it, ultimately it's it's the mix of personalities, right? It's my personality with a Spencer's or mine with a Caitlin. Um, and so look the same. And what I have learned over the last two years, especially, is I, I've sort of learned it's like when it's like your group of friends, how you would have like the one friend that you would go to that like will dish you the honest take and, and you go to them. And then you have your one friend that's just going to like let you cry. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think that that's really what I have formed with our investors where. Who um, always gives you the truth? Spencer, 100% Spencer <laughs> will give you the truth. Um, but who do you go I to to cry? Who do you go to uh, for a shoulder to cry on? Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to Caitlin for that. Um, for for like the quickest advice ever, I would go to my investor Emmanuel, who's at Cassius. Um, he is, you know, like I could call Emmanuel at two in the morning, and I swear to God, he'd like pick up. And then his processing time is so insanely fast that I would be like, Oh no, it's I emailed you about the yeah, like he would. Sleep. He'd have the perfect input and advice, you know, that quickly. Um, And so you kind of learn like what type of support you're going to get from each. But one of the things I love about Spencer, and this is probably no coincidence, 
because he has three kids. Um, he does have this like amazing kind of like dust yourself off and get back out there. Kind of like pep <laughs> talk at the end of something where you're like, all right, yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> I think he told me he still cooks breakfast for his kids. That's what he's like, what he loves doing nowadays. I know. And his, his daughter actually interned for us this summer at invisible <sighs> and is an absolute star. I told her she, she, has broken the system for all for future interns because she was so good. I, I told you, can can Luca when he's old enough, can he come intern for you guys? Absolutely, Luca. <laughs> Luca's got Luca's got a. Uh, actually, he can start interning as soon as he starts watching Coco Melon. He could be a focus group. <laughs> oh, so I got ninety days. Okay, ninety days. <laughs> and, I, and I know you have to wrap up soon, but what's next? Like, what are your growth plans, or what sort of new characters do you have coming on? So, in terms of growth, um. We are so excited to be in a position where we are really now striking some very exciting commercial deals for our characters. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're going to see them in TV shows. You're going to see them across platforms like Epic and, and Roblox and um, on the toy aisles and in publishing. And so we're really excited about all that's materializing there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Quakeway, for instance, like we're, we're pursuing a recording deal where she's going to become a recording artist. And, and this, is, again, this, is, this is Serena's daughter's. Yeah. Serena's daughter's doll. Yeah. That character. And so, um, you know, we're, we're really happy about the way that that's all materializing. And then on the new IP front, um, you know, I'm sure having nothing to do with the fact that my kids are toddlers and, and very much, um, you know, in, in the phase of life where they're feeling a lot of things uh, and we are feeling a lot of things as their parents watching them feel all these things um, and so we have this new franchise that we are launching called Lovey and Lovey is this adorable heart-shaped character who's like a walking mood ring so she changes oh, color wow. based on her emotions um, and think of it as like our you know inside out like Pixar's movie inside out where we're really helping kiddos identify their big feelings and and deal with them um, and so we're launching that one in two weeks. So last question, Tricia, and I just want to thank you so much for being on. But sure. you know, a lot of students across the country at different schools, you know, undergrad and graduate will listen to the podcast. What's your pitch to them if they think they may want to, they, they want to avoid McKinsey, Bain and BCG and go straight to Invisible? What's your pitch to them? Oh my God, you won't regret it. Um, it's funny, mo most people that tell me that they started at one of those places, then they're like, yeah, I made it two years. And you can just see how like, you know, exhausted and and um, beat up they are. But I think, you know, for for anyone that is leaving school and thinking about like what their career trajectory looks like, um, a couple of things I wish that I would have known. Number one, tune in to what jazzes you and gets you excited. Don't turn that down. Don't let anyone tell you not to listen to it. Listen to it and act on it sooner than later. Even if it wasn't your major, even if it didn't require you to go to a four-year university and you did, um, what gets you excited? And, and you know, if, if we could all be so lucky to have that dream scenario where we don't have to work, what would you do with your time? How would you spend your days? And try to find a job that gives you relatively the highest percentage of time doing that thing. Um, for me, that was storytelling. So that's that's one thing. And then the other I would say is um, bet on yourself, take jobs that scare you. Um, if you're not nervous in your first couple of months on the job, you're going to be bored and you're probably not going to like it. Um, I still get like butterflies before certain calls or meetings. And I think that's a really good thing and, and something that makes me think like I'm very engaged in what I do. Um, so bet on yourself and, and hopefully go build something, go, go be a part of something from the ground up. Um, and don't be afraid to take that risk.
I love it, Trisha. I love every single thing about your company, including the culture. Um, thank you so much for spending some time. This has been an amazing and probably the fastest hour of my day. <laughs> thank you so much. It was so lovely to talk to you. And I'll be following up to see when Luca, you know, get, gets into Coco Melon and, and God willing, you get longer than 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining everyone. To share your thoughts about this episode or questions for any of our guests, you may join our community of imperfect leaders striving for greatness at www.imperfectleaders.com. You'll then have access to all past episodes, special content, and invitation-only roundtables with the country's most successful leaders, business school professors, and executive coaches. See you next week, everyone.